If uh, you want to turn with me in your Bible, um, we are going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to be starting in chapter 5 at verse 11. Um, and Christoph's going to be going right the way through and looking right to the end of chapter 6, but we're only going to read at this point uh, up until verse 12. So uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 to 6, verse 12, and you'll find that on page 1204 uh, of the Pew Bible. It's been a while since we've, uh, we've been here uh, and a while since we've looked at this. So um, this, these verses, they open up at a point where we have just been thinking. We've been thinking about how Jesus is greater and better and higher than the angels, greater and better and higher than, than Moses, the one who led the people of Israel into the promised land, and Jesus is the one who will lead us into a promised land that will never end. We've heard about how he is our great high priest, greater than the high priests who came before, those who, who offered sacrifices in order to, to take away the sins of the people. And Jesus comes and is the ultimate sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice. And after we, we've heard all of this, the writer to the Hebrews um, has a warning. And that's where this little section starts. So let's, let's read. Uh, this is Hebrews 5 verse 11. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you're slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you, you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment and God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be bought, brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Folks, if you could be sure to have that passage open 
um, Hebrews 5 into chapter 6, page 1204. Um, I love the way the writer gets going there in verse 11. He tells them they're slow to learn. Talk about winning this crowd over and you know, encouraging them and, and getting them on board and on side. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to say that. Um, I'll tell you what I'll say is I find Hebrews hard. Um, so I would be among the slow to learn, I think, um, that he's talking about. Tonight in, in Hebrews, um, uh, Stephen's already done a little bit of this, but I, I think having been away from the book for more than a month, it might be worth trying to reestablish the thread very, very quickly. I won't take long doing this. Uh, maybe the best thing to do would be, with your Bible open in front of you, flick to the start of the book, because even the wee chapter headings there, what I want for you is I want you to start this evening in the middle of chapter 5 with a sense that you broadly know what's been going on in the book. So when we started this series, we talked a little bit about the, the Hebrews, the, the people to whom the writer is writing. They're facing persecution. They're under pressure to jack in the, the whole commitment to Jesus and, and just go back to a Judaism without Jesus, uh, the Judaism with which they had grown up. Uh, and the writer, his, his point in this whole book is to simply say, no way, you can't do it. And he's going he's gonna to spend these chapters of this letter uh, telling them why it, it, you simply can't go back from Jesus. Jesus is better, as Stephen's uh, reminded us, than any alternative. He's better than the angels. They're there for a reason that isn't obvious to us, but in Jewish tradition, the angels gave the law to Moses. So that's probably why the writer starts by talking about the angels. He says, um, Jesus is better than the angels, chapter 1. He's greater than Moses, through whom the, the law was finally given. Uh, Moses, who brought them out of Egypt, brought them to the borders of the, the promised land. He's greater than Joshua. I think that's implied as you go through the chapters that talk about rest. Uh, Joshua did bring the people to the promised land to a rest of sorts, um, finished the journey, brought them uh, to the place that they'd been uh, aiming to get to. But his point about that is Jesus gives a permanent rest, not, not the temporary rest that the people experienced in the land. Uh, when we, we stack all that up, what we have the writer saying is, listen, Jesus is greater than any thing or the entirety of our Jewish tradition because he's the culmination of it. Everything that's gone before culminates in him. He is better. You can't go back. There is no plan B. And as Stephen also reminded us, in the last of our sermons in this series, we focused in on this idea of Jesus as a high priest, but he is the, the great high priest. Um, and, and there's a couple of things that the writer drew out there. One is that he says a priest has to identify with the people, otherwise he can't represent them before God. And he talks about how Jesus does that. Uh, and we talked uh, in November, late November, about how Jesus gets us. He understands us. But also then about how he's qualified to bring us to God because he He's a priest who not only makes sacrifices, he, he is the sacrifice. And we're going to think about that a little bit more later in the letter. I suppose the best thing for me to say as we start tonight's passage is that we're pulling back a little bit from the, 
the dealing with the, the sort of Jewish culture, the Jewish traditions, and the writer is reminding us that he's a, he's a real pastor writing to real people, and he has a real purpose in mind. He, he wants to encourage them on the way. Beginning in 5.11 through to 6.20, the bit we're going to look at this evening, I, I see him say three things. First of all, he says, let's get growing up in chapter 5.11 through to 6, verse 3. Growing up, keeping going in 6.4 to 6.12, uh, and then how to keep going. So he wants us to grow up, he wants us to keep going, and he finishes by giving us some encouragement for how we might do that. Okay, so the first thing he does is he tells them to grow up. Tell me this, do you like it when somebody does that to you? Did, did that ever, maybe it never happened to you, maybe you were one of those, it happened to me a lot. So as a kid or as a young adult, somebody looking you in the eye and saying, Christoph, there's no, no nice way to say this, it's just time you grew up. That's what the writer does here. It's got a little bit of that incisive nature to it. But let's listen in and see what he, what he has in mind for us. What, what, what does he mean? He talks in verse 12 about, uh, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. Before I go to the 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 hard word that's there, I want, to, I want to think about the implication first. You see the implication? He says that anybody who's been a follower of Jesus for any length of time ought to be a teacher. That's interesting. Maybe we don't always pay attention to that. Every disciple of Jesus Christ is to be a discipler, is to make disciples. We're not all going to be ministers and preachers, I accept that. But every one of us can be inviting other people to, to come to know Jesus and to, to grow in him. So we can be teaching our kids or our grandkids. If we don't have kids of our own, we can be passing on faith to those in, in this family, this church family. And we made that promise again this morning. And Kirkpatrick, you're not long between making those promises, are you? Those baptismal vows. Seems like every week now we baptize another four or five kids. We're, we're promising all the time, all of us, that we're going to pass on this life with Jesus that we have to the kids. Even if we, okay, maybe you don't like kids or young people. Um, I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands, but maybe, maybe that's not your sweet spot. There are always people younger in the faith. Might be an adult. Age isn't really the biggest factor here. It's, I, think, I think what the writer's encouraging us to, to think of ourselves as people who can teach someone nearby. We ought to be teachers, every one of us. I got thinking about this a little bit, and I suppose I've been around Christian communities long enough now to know that there are times in our lives for, for many of us when things can feel a bit stagnant. I'll be a bit blunt. We can be a bit bored with the whole thing. And I wondered if, if this might not be close to the heart of it, this issue. We're not teaching others. 
you see, there's a challenge that comes with, with saying to ourselves, yeah, you know, I've been walking with Jesus 20 or 30 years. I maybe need to think about how I could encourage somebody else. So there's a challenge to myself when I remember that and flick that switch. And then there's a, a massive encouragement that flows into our lives when we're around people who are younger in the faith than us and we get to see them flourish and grow. And I've come to think after years of watching my own life and, and the lives of others that, that if that encouragement went missing from a community or, or from my life, a huge part goes missing. So how do we keep ourselves teaching others? Teaching's probably the best way to, to keep encouraged in the faith ourselves. I think that's probably why the writer to the Hebrews jumps in and says, you know, we ought all to be teaching. He elaborates on this call to, to grow, and he challenges the, the Hebrews to a change of diet. Look what he says there. Quit eating baby food and go for the solid food. Um, there's that moment, isn't there? Um, I, I remember listening in to Claire over the years bringing up our wee ones. There was a bit of debate about when the, the kids should start solids. We were always looking forward to it because I think it meant they slept longer. Isn't that right? You, you sort of shove it in and, and it gives you a long... Yeah. So, but hey, everybody's supposed to be coming off the baby food and, and looking for solids. Each one of us is supposed to be asking ourselves the question, how can I go a bit further with all of this? How can I grow to know more? How can I go a bit deeper with Jesus? Solid food, he says, verse 14, is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Uh, I mentioned this this morning. There's something about these early weeks in January, isn't there? there there's so much talk about the, the new year and what we're, you know, how, how fit and beautiful and intelligent we're all going to be by the end of the year because of these resolutions we're making. But people do, you know, they pay attention for a week or two to their, their physical regime. I wonder if you've given any thought to your spiritual fitness for 2019. We ought to be in training, the writer to the Hebrews says. It's not, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not taking one small part of Scripture here and making more of it. It's, it's actually a recurring theme. Paul, a couple of times at least, compares life with Jesus to a sort of an athletic contest or a, or a training regime. He says, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. That's First Timothy. Train yourself to be godly. And then in First Corinthians 9, he says, run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They'll do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it, that is this strict training, to get a crown that will last forever. So what's it going to be? Should I pause and wait until everybody's had a chance to think about what training regime 
they're going to enter into. You don't have, and, and maybe wait till you've stuck up your hand and say, yes. I've, you know, why wouldn't we? We're, we're to be in training. Um, is, is this the year when you're going to come back to reading God's Word? You did it when you were younger. You got out of the way of it. You stopped ordering the Bible notes or whatever. We've got that little booklet out there, Bible reading trail map, all sorts of suggestions. Um, we had a great time here this morning in the book by book group. A bunch of us who are reading one book of the Bible per month uh, and meeting at the end of the month to discuss it. I think I can see God starting to, to work in, in that. Maybe this is the year for that. What about getting into your training? We've talked about the diet, getting into God's Word. What about your training? Well, I had the guys here this morning. Wasn't that amazing? Just brilliant. So we got a bit of an insight there this morning into the kind of uh, quality of teaching and learning that's on offer on our doorstep here. Meets in the Stormont Hotel. We're blessed. All this good stuff happens right in our neighborhood. So the C.S. Lewis Institute, is it time for you to sign up for that or some other, some other intensive discipling experience, a place where you can really grow? Maybe it is. Are we going to take on the mantle, each one of us, to learn to be, become a teacher and a discipler of others? You can do it in your discipleship group. You can just say to yourself, I'm going to be one of the, the folks who, who comes to this in a, in a positive. I'm going to look to see how I can lead and encourage others. Folks, I can't make these decisions for you. I, I can teach here at the front. I can offer these invitations. But um, in the end, it seems to me each person is responsible for their own spiritual growth. I've been around fabulous Christian communities and I've seen people not grow. You know, being in them not for years, but for decades, and not discernibly grow. So there's something each one of us has to, to grapple with there. How am I going to grow? Let's keep growing. The second thing that the writer to the Hebrews talks about in this passage is keeping going. And, and really that's verses 4 to 12 of chapter 6. And he does it with a couple of moves. First of all, he warns them uh, of the danger of not keeping going. And then he does a lovely thing. He tells them that actually he thinks they're doing pretty well. But first of all, a warning. He talks about a danger chapter uh, in verses 4 to 8. He said, It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. He says it's impossible for those people, if they fall away, ever to be brought back to repentance. There's a lot to think about there, isn't there? Reminds me of one of the questions we used to ask in Grill the Leader in youth group. If a person is once saved, are they always saved? You've maybe heard that uh, question or asked it yourself. Is it possible for a person who's experienced God's salvation to lose it? That's the kind of territory we're in here in Hebrews 6, verse 6. The best way to understand this, by the way, there's, 
there's a lot written about this. Um, I read a lot of stuff about this this week. I think I discovered five or six different views uh, of answers to that question. Um, I, I'm inclined to, to try to get back to the context in which uh, the writer says what he says and see if that can help. So the best way to understand what the writer says here in 6.6, let's look at what he's talking about in general. Ch verse 1 He's talking there about the elementary teachings about Christ. He talks there about the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. So, repenting and believing the gospel, the elementary teachings about Christ, that is foundational to Christian living. Without it, we're lost. If a person's fallen away from, from Jesus, then it's impossible for them to be brought back. Once I've rejected Jesus, I've nowhere else to go. There, there is no other option. There's no other way to find forgiveness and access to God but through Jesus Christ. I want to go a bit closer into verse 6. If you keep your eye on verse 6 for a second, the writer says there, that it's impossible for a person who's fallen away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. What he says here, I think, is that when we reject Jesus, we're effectively standing with those who crucified him and those who mocked him. We're not any different than they are. To reject Jesus Christ is a total kind of a thing. We may as well have been the ones driving the nails or the ones pointing up at him and ridiculing him. But I want you to notice, see the wee footnote there in uh, verse 6, the, the wee letter B, if you follow that down to the bottom. Rather than saying that it's impossible for the fallen to be brought back because they're crucifying the Son of God, we could read that word because as while. And actually, when I was reading up on this in the commentaries, I think that makes better sense of a thing that's happening with a change in tenses in the Greek. So this means that we can't be brought back to repentance while we're rejecting Jesus. I'm sure none of you would want to argue with me about that. A person who's rejecting Jesus isn't in a right, repenting relationship with the living God. This interpretation allows that, that there may be a time in a, in a person's life when they, they simply haven't yet repented, when they haven't yet made their, their peace with God. And of course, they're outside of, of salvation at that point. My overall feeling about this passage is that the, the person described here is, is probably a person who, who's part of the community, who looks to all the outsiders like, like they are a believer. And I think what the writer of the Hebrews is doing here is he's admitting that he doesn't know whether a person truly has faith in Jesus or not. And as a pastor, I recognize that instinct. There's a, a great part of me that would love to just see a, a, you know, a, a mark on everybody that I would know for sure who's safe 
in Christ and who isn't. But, but I, I tend to hesitate from making those judgments myself. Sometimes I find myself, I'm out visiting with somebody, maybe an older member of the congregation, and I'm just not sure, I'll, I'll ask them. Because I want for them to know that they have assurance that they are in Christ. So the writer here, he's, he's, if we zoom back out for a second, he wants these, these uh, Hebrew believers to keep going. And he does two things. He warns them about the danger of not, not being with Jesus. And then he does a lovely thing, verses 9 to 11. He tells them that he's optimistic about them, their case in particular. We are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. So I, I think there's a lovely balance here. Although he's willing to, to ask the hard questions, uh, to give a very direct kind of a warning, that doesn't mean he's judgmental. In fact, he takes the time to say, listen, I, I, I think you guys are doing well. He, he doesn't have them down as doomed to fail. He, he's cheering them on, and he wants them not to, to fall away, but to keep going. So, so far this evening, we've seen that the author wants them to keep going, and he wants them to keep growing. And in the final verses, which we haven't yet read, the final verses of chapter 6, he gives them some encouragement. I think what he's doing is he's saying, here's, here's how you might be able to do this. I'm going to say for a moment, I haven't read much biography. Um, I know some people read a lot of biography, and I've heard them talk about it, how it can be a very informing and inspiring thing. If you read the story of some great person, it, it can inspire you to live a, a better life yourself. Well, this is what the writer chooses to do here. He, he begins by saying he calls his reader to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. And then he chooses the biography that he wants them to latch on to. He says, think of Abraham. And he talks for a moment about the story of Abraham. Just to help you understand what he says here, uh, I'm going to dive into the detail for a moment and then zoom back out. So he says something in, in verse 13 we might not immediately get. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. Now, now we might not be sure what he's talking about there, about swearing by himself and that, that kind of thing. But look down to verse 16, because he sort of explains himself. He says, Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Now, you might know this dynamic of swearing by something to put an end to an argument. I did it when I was a kid, right? So if, if Stephen and I were mates in school, and I said to Stephen, Stephen, give us, lend me that marble of yours, and I'll bring you mine in tomorrow, he'd look at me and go, aye, right? And I'd say, I swear. Do you know what I mean? This, this kind of thing where you add add a swearing to, to try to make your language more persuasive. I can remember a phase when I was a wee seven or eight-year-old boy, probably, and sort of learning how to use language and be persuasive. And, and I'd, so what you do is, if, if the first swear wasn't enough, 
you'd, you'd, you'd go, you'd escalate up the ladder of swearing. So you'd s- say something like, oh, I, I swear on my mother's life, I will bring that marble in tomorrow. And then if there was some wee lad in the group who hadn't grown up in a, a home like mine where you were taught not to take the name of the Lord your God in vain, they would come out top of the pile. He'd just look you in the eye and say, I swear to God. And if somebody said that, like, where do you go? You know, you'd hand over the marble and the thing would be done. The writer to the Hebrews reminds the readers of a time when God said, I swear to God. Flick with me for a second. Genesis 22. It's coincidentally on page 22 of the Bible. Wouldn't it be great if the whole Bible worked that way? Genesis 22 on page 22. You'll see there a title in the NIV. It's Abraham tested. And uh, if you, you look very quickly, you'll see that it's, it's that occasion where, where God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. It's, I don't know, it's just one of the most challenging passages in the Bible. He's kept Abraham and his wife Sarah waiting for years and decades to have a son. And then when he has the son, some years later he says, take that son and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. So Abraham, uh, if you read the story there, he prepares the sacrifice, his son for sacrifice. He's about to plunge the knife into the heart of Isaac before at the last God intervenes and offers a ram as a sacrifice in his place. It's this passage that the writer of the Hebrews has in mind in chapter 6, our passage this evening, and he talks here about God, or the passage talks about God swearing by himself. Look at verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abram from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you've done this, and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. When God says, I swear by myself, he says, put an end to all argument. This is a promise that will not be broken. Flick now back to Hebrews. The writer's drawn our attention to this moment, this moment where God swears by himself. He wants to show us how utterly reliable God's promises to us are. And he reminds us in verse 15 of Hebrews 6, he reminds us that after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. He got his many descendants. He got his land. God was true to his word. Now the whole point of that illustration from Abraham is to invite us. Do you remember? Biography, imitation, be like Abraham. No matter what your circumstances, no matter how unlikely it seems, trust in the irrevocable, unfailable promises of God. Look there at verse 18. The, reminder, the writer's reminding us by now that that we have a God who makes promises, a God who swears by himself, a God, verse 18, who cannot lie. 
pointing to this God, he says, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. And he goes on to give us a wonderful metaphor. He says, we have this hope like an anchor, firm and secure. I was just checking to see if any BB boys would stand in their pew, go to attention or salute, just as I read that verse. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to a rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. The BB insignia on the crest is an anchor, That's the BB hymn, the verse of it that I've just sung. If you've ever wondered where that comes from, it's here, Hebrews 6. Sorry, the nostalgia got the better of me there for a moment. Um, Back to the text. What's the writer talking about? It's not actually that easy to see. When he talks about an anchor, the anchor is the promise of God. Abraham had to promise or or to trust in the promises of the God who swears by himself. The writer to the Hebrews says, I want you to do the same. I want you to trust in the promises of God. Not not God's promise to Abraham specifically of descendants and a land. No, it's, it's the promise that God has made to us in Jesus Christ. When, when he lived among us, Jesus made promises to us. He said, you're like my sheep, and I'm going to give you eternal life. John chapter 10, they shall never perish, he says. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. We're talking here about how we can keep growing and keep going, and we have a promise of Jesus that he's never going to let us go. Think for a second, we're talking here about an anchor. We're to take that promise and understand it as an anchor. What does an anchor do? I'm not much of a sailor, but I have sailed a few times. I remember going off the west coast of Scotland. And if you don't go into a harbor, a place where there's a, either a, a landing platform or where there's a, a, a buoy for you to ring onto, then if you want a night's sleep, where you don't have to, you know, think about it. If, if you don't fix your boat, you've got to look after that boat all night, whatever the weather. So what you do is you drop anchor. And the whole point of the anchor is to fix the boat. Uh, an anchor well dropped means that the boat doesn't move. This is, this is the image that the writer has in mind. An anchor protects us from the wind and the waves that would drive us this way or drive us that way. I think, I think to understand the metaphor, it's, it's to, to protect us for the things that would knock us off course in our life with God, things that would blow us or, or, or drive us away from the, the place where we know his love. I'm looking at, and I, I see some folks here this evening who've had... Um, circumstances in your life that have had um, 
have had that effect on you where they could easily have driven you from the place where you know God's, God's love? So sometimes it's outward circumstances. Sometimes it's inward doubts. We just doubt ourselves. Uh, if I loved God, why would I be doing this or feeling this way? It's our circumstances. It's our inner doubts. But the anchor... Anchor's not us. It's the promises of God given to us in Jesus. Last winter, we followed a series here. Some of you might remember it. Reformation 500, we called it. And it was a, a look back to the Reformation, celebrating the 500th anniversary, and looking at some of the key learnings or doctrines out of the Reformation that could still be an encouragement to us today. I enjoyed all of those evenings, but one that stood out for me that I had a chance to teach was on a, a, a Reformation theme called Union with Christ. I could probably teach a whole series on this, but if I summed it up um, with two phrases anchored in two Bible verses, Union with Christ means that I am in Christ and that Christ is in me. Probably the best verse to talk about what it means to be in Christ, Paul says in Colossians 3, he writes, You died and your life is hidden now with Christ in God. Your life is hidden in Christ. It's in God. We're in Christ. But not only that, Christ in me, Galatians 2 verse 20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Union with Christ. I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. Folks, that's our anchor. Just as an anchor gives a shift a ship confidence that it won't be blown this way or, or overturned in, in the, the waves. So our union with Christ gives us confidence. Folks, our life with God doesn't rise or fall on what we do. If you have the worst of days tomorrow, you're no less secure in Jesus than you are if you have the best of days because you have an anchor. And it's not you. It's the promises of God in Jesus. We've been talking here this evening about the importance of, of growing up and of keeping going. We've been thinking for the last few moments about some encouragements for how to keep going. Like Abraham before us, we, we anchor ourselves in the promises of God. The writer gives us one last metaphor here in chapter 6, and with this we, we move to a close. Verses 19 to 20. He says, we have this hope. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. He's talking here about the Holy of Holies, the very closest presence of God, where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. The image, Jesus going before us. He's a forerunner. He's a pioneer. He's gone ahead. He's getting the place ready for, for you. He, he's getting the place ready for you. That's what he said. John chapter 14, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back to take you to be with me. He's gone ahead. It's all good. 
I love the way Barbara Brown Taylor, an American author, talks about this aspect of Jesus' work. She says that when Jesus came that first Christmas time, when he took on flesh and bone, God took humanity into his being forever. And when he ascended into heaven, Jesus imported flesh and blood for the first time into those holy precincts. He paved the way for us so that we, when we arrive later, no one will be shocked that the likes of us are invited to the party. Isn't that brilliant? Nobody's going to look at you and say, what are you doing here? You're just a, a human being. There's a human being already there, and he's getting the place ready for us. Isn't that brilliant? The early church fathers put it like this. In heaven, a hand like this hand will throw open the gate of new life to thee. We shall be greeted by a face like this face, one that we will recognize. Folks, we're in Christ. Christ's in us. We have a place waiting for us. One last encouragement to, to keep us going. In, in chapter 6, verse 10, I didn't make a big deal of this, the writer reminds us that God sees our work and our love. I think that's beautiful. It's very easy to imagine that, that our lives are invisible to God or of no interest to Him. And the writer says, no, no. He sees it all. He sees your faithful following Jesus. He sees those times when you deny yourself, when you take up your cross and you follow him. He notices all of that. And I think what the writer does is he looks into our lives today and he anticipates a time that, that we're a bit clearer about in our Christian theology, a time when in the future he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. He will say that in the future, but he's already thinking it now. He sees. And the writer Max Lucado talks about some encouragement we can take from this, this homecoming that lies ahead, this, this moment where Jesus sees us and applauds us. He says, you may not have noticed it, but you're closer to home than ever before. Every moment is a step taken Every breath a page turned. Every day is a mile marked and a mountain climbed. You're closer to home than you've ever been. Before you know it, your appointed time will come and you'll descend the ramp and enter the city. You'll see faces waiting for you. You'll hear your name spoken by those who know you and love you. And maybe, just maybe, in the back, behind the crowds, the one who would rather die than live without you, he'll remove his pierced hands from his heavenly robe and he'll applaud you. Folks, this is why 
we want to keep growing. This is why we want to keep going. Because he's gone ahead of us. And he's waiting for us. And we want to hear his well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray.